I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. Aside from my family, I couldn't imagine of anything else that I've put more time and energy into the business, and it means a lot to me. More than dollars and cents, just what it is. My guest on this episode is John Burkett. John's with McCullough Grain in Sharpsville, Pennsylvania. He and I met several years ago and struck up a friendship fairly quickly have in common that we love the grain business and basis trading, but it seems like our conversations always go off in many different directions about many different things, and I think you'll find that this episode is a good example of that. I always learn a lot when I talk to John, and I hope you will too. Morning, John. How was the line at the bean plant today? I guess you went to the river. There wasn't one. The holdup this morning was waiting for it to quit raining enough that we could actually open the doors to the pit and dump the load of beans. So we uh, we got a little delay delay to harvest here for a couple of days, it looks like. Is a, is a harvest delay welcome right about now, or would you rather keep on charging? I think I'd rather keep on charging, but it's not going to hurt anything. We had, we'd made some decent sales on some October beans, and it's not going to hurt to make some space and let the next, let the next, uh, batch of harvest hit us hard i'll be i'll probably be in better shape for the next the next go at it so hey let's talk about mccullough grain a little bit you guys are over there in western pennsylvania what all goes on there uh so we're we're if you're if you're looking at a map we're right uh, about the corner of uh interstate 79 would be the southwest corner of that quadrant at 79 and 80 make uh I'm sorry, Northwest Quadrant that 79 and 80 make, uh, if you're looking at the map, um, we're about 10, 15 miles inside the Ohio border. Uh, so we, we farm, we, uh, farm about 2,300 acres ourselves. We've got, um, and we've got two, two grain locations. We buy corn, wheat, and soybeans and we've got cattle and we do hay and we kind of got our fingers in a little bit of everything. Are they different business ent- entities or are they one business entity, but you track profit centers or is it all just one big thing? So they're, they're functionally one business entity. We had to separate the farm and the elevator. Uh, I think what year it was in 2000, probably 2010. I think we did that. We broke the farm and the elevator apart because it got to be the accounting with the, the market gyrations and, uh, uh, mark to market accounting and all that. It, it, it just, we couldn't do it on a cash basis. And that actually, I don't know that we were doing it on a, on a cash basis. <laughs> we got audited by the IRS. And I think we just had the agent so confused that he didn't find anything wrong with the conclusion of the audit. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I think the Eastern Ohio, uh, the Youngstown office for the IRS didn't have anybody that was familiar with mark to market accounting in the grain world. So we lucked out there. Um, we weren't doing anything wrong. We just, it just became, uh, yeah, I think we outgrew our, our accounting. We outgrew our, the, the account we had and we, we got hooked up with an accountant out in Western Ohio that does, uh, I know he's worked with Rogers grain, uh, Dan Combs, his name 
kind of got us straightened out and helped us through the transition from cash to accrual on the grain elevator side of things. And then the farm, you know, we kept the farm separate for that purpose, but it's been, it makes more work bookkeeping wise, but it's been good as far as keeping the two separate. So we're able to do a little bit better accounting job on the grain side, as far as the bank's concerned. The grain side just does grain. You guys aren't, aren't in the agronomy or seed sales or things like that, or are you? Yep. So we sell seed. Um, okay. We're one of the bigger, we're one of the bigger uh, Grow seed dealers in, in our region, in our territory. And uh, we've been doing that since da- uh, Dave's dad did it years ago. Uh, probably 30, 30, 40 years, I'd say. I'd, uh, just a guess. Um, sold a couple other different brands. We've been selling Grow for oh, 20, 20 some years anyway. And now that you say that, I guess that really nice Carhartt hoodie that you gave me a couple of years ago should have been a clue. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, that's how you do it. That's how, that's how you do your merchandising. When you're, when you're cheap like me, you try to put the brand name on it, get some nice hoodies and stuff for your customers and then pitch it to the, the seed sales guy. Like, Hey, I put your name on there. You think you could kick us a few dollars to help with our hoodies that we gave to our customers. So that's, <laughs> that's how I try to play it. <laughs> We're good. Well, I don't know that I'm jumping up much business for you, but it is um, my favorite hoodie to wear when it's rainy out for sure. That's a, that waterproof Carhartt is, is really something. I don't How, know if it would have helped you much with the rain you guys just got down there. That had to be pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Right around here. The whole, we were, the old hurricane. Yeah. We, we were really lucky. We got, um, we got several inches of rain and very little wind and not, a, you know, no storm surge, not enough rain to cause any, any big time problems. So we were, I guess, uh, you know, everybody gets their turn with these things. And luckily for us, this wasn't our turn. And it's kind of, I actually had that discussion with my mom this weekend. She lives in another part of the state that also didn't have much of a storm. And she was, she said she felt bad for being grateful <laughs> that, that she yeah. didn't lose her house. And I, I, uh, I don't, it's, I guess one of those things you have to hold in tension is that I am very thankful that my house is still standing and I'm also very aware and sad for the people that didn't, but I'm not less thankful that I, that it didn't happen to me. So I, I don't know if those, uh, I guess those Survivor's concepts, guilt. well, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I feel guilty yeah. she kind of did, but I, I guess I, I just see it as, as, um, two, two concepts that can exist and they have a tension between them, but they're both valid. And and uh, I guess any, you know, any any natural disaster has the opportunity for that. And these just happen. The hurricanes are our flavor of natural disasters. So if I was guessing how long you've been around in McCullough Gray, and I I I got to think it's something like fifteen years. Is that is that right? Yeah, I uh, I grew up at the at, at the. I shot archery is how I kind of met the McCullough's. I uh, shot archery competitively as a kid. So I think I started hanging around the archery shop there when I was 13 or 14. And uh, you can't show up at the archery shop and not get recruited. Back when I was there, you couldn't show up at the archery shop and not get recruited into like baling hay or doing something. So so I uh, I got into baling hay and just I just enjoyed the work of being on the farm and so yeah, I, I, uh, my family moved back to Pittsburgh and I was able to stay, I stayed, I lived in Dave and Deanne's basement when I was 16 years old. I basically moved out of my parents' house and lived in their basement to finish high school, um, and continue my archery, my archery career. So I, uh, 
and that's at that time I got more and more involved. And while I was in high school, I was going down and pulling the gravity wagons around and we didn't have enough space back then, of course, that was the same problem we have now. <laughs> but, uh, we, we, we leave everybody in the whole neighborhood, the whole parking lot would be full of everybody's junk equipment. And we'd, uh, you get to learn how to drive a lot of different trucks that way, but we'd, uh, <laughs> and tractors, but everybody believed the gravity wagons around and we just keep the dryer. We had our little, uh, farm fans flat dryer. Uh, we just keep that dryer going all, all night and all day and pulling a wagon over and top off the 3000 bushel wet bin we had. So that's how I kind of got my, got broke into the grain business. So and I went away to, I went away to school for a couple of years and, uh, tried to make the 2004 Olympic team. And uh, one, once that was a failure, I came back and uh, I worked a job away while we were building the business up. And uh, I worked for the, uh, for a Navy con a Navy contractor in Pittsburgh for a year. Uh, my wife and I got married and I came back to the farm full time. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history as they say. So, so really your, your, your whole life almost in one way or another. Yeah, 20, 23, 24 years. So, yep. Do, do the McCulloughs own the archery shop or is that just coincidental that they were no, around there? Yeah, a lot? Dave, and his, Dave and his wife own the archery shop. Uh, and Speed and Charlene, I guess you could call it a ministry of theirs. They've, for years, I mean, for, for decades and decades, they uh, they coached young kids how to shoot, um, how to shoot archery. Uh, they had uh, the 1996 gold medalist, Rodney White, uh, actually learned to shoot at McCullough's and uh he was a, it was a team team gold medalist but yeah he um he uh, he learned to shoot it at the right here just up the road from the grain bins so so yeah they've been in the archery world for for decades so how did you get started in archery um i was i i was a swimmer in middle school and when you're a young man there's a certain time in your life when you decide i'm not wearing a speedo anymore and i'm not <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not doing this anymore. At least that's what I decided. Yeah. And, uh, my parents said, if you're going to quit something, you have to do something else. So, so I, uh, I was going to do rifle shooting or I, I was always an aiming. My, I grew up hunting and fishing and doing that kind of thing with my dad. Um, so we bought a compound bow, which is uh, the kind of bow with the wheels on it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I got to, uh, I got to shooting at just a small shop down in town and I got interested in going to some competitions and looking around and here we found the McCullough's youth program. I guess I don't know if it was in the paper or how they, how my mom found it. Um, but that's kind of how I got started here and speed and Charlene made me give up that compound bow and they taught me how to shoot a, what's, what's called a recurve or Olympic style bow. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, like I say, 13, 14 years old on, that's what I've, that's what I've always shot for, for competition. I think that that's something I didn't know. I've watched Olympic archery a little bit here and there. I try to watch a little bit of all the Olympics when they're on, uh, but I guess I didn't pick up on it in the Olympics. They're only shooting recurve bows. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of international tournaments that you can do that. Uh, you know, the, the compound shooters can compete on an international level, but as far as the Olympics go for now, that's just, uh, if they've limited it to just recurve, a recurve style bow. 
So you didn't have, uh, I guess, little league or pop Warner football or baseball, I guess baseball is little league, but basketball, you, you didn't, you didn't go in for the traditional team sports. You're a swimmer and then archery. Guy. I did. I just wasn't okay. good at any of those. I mean, I, my dad was a soccer coach when I was a kid. I'm pretty sure he made me sit on the bench because I was the worst player on the team a lot of times. So it was either defense or the bench, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so. <laughs> so yeah, I just didn't excel at those things. And you know, I, you, you shouldn't focus too much on your weaknesses. I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, probably not. And and uh, so speaking of strengths, at one point, you and I have talked about this before, but not in a lot of detail. At one point, you were out in Colorado Springs or close by at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. And I'd been there a few times, but actually where I lived uh, when I was training was in uh, San Diego, just okay. south of San Diego in Chula Vista. And that's, is that an archery hotbed or what's going on out there? That's just where the, that's just where the Olympic Training Center has their archery complex. Okay, got it. I don't actually think it's an, if you were to look it up, it's not even an Olympic quote unquote training center. Now, I think the city of Chula Vista took it over and it's, it's ran through the city now. So I think they were trying to get out of some of the, the cost of having the, having these training centers open, but it's a, it's a resident training center. You live there, you eat there. Um, they actually have a deal worked out with the state of California where you can get in state tuition, which was a pretty good deal. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty good opportunity for, for, uh, for young, young people who, you know, if you don't have a family and you just want to train full time, it's a, it's a great place to go. What was the, what was the process that led you there? You're shooting archery, obviously doing pretty well at it. I imagine competing in local, regional, maybe national events. Did, does somebody approach you and say, Hey, come out to the Olympic training center. Or is that something you decide to do or, or how does that work? Yep. So when you make something as a youth, I made some international teams when you make those international teams, you get, you start to get exposure to some of the national coaches. And that's how I was, I was, I was invited through those teams and through the contacts I'd made there, I was invited to apply to that program. And the word you used a little while ago was when that failed or when that was a failure. So what, what, uh, did well, you just, um, the way the Olympic learn, trials uh, work, so you, yep. you shoot, right. uh, you shoot it at a, at a set distance and they shoot, uh, I can't remember back then. I think you shot a, it was still a feet around. So you shoot 90, 70, 50, and 30 meters for a score. And then that ranks you, uh, it puts you in brackets. And then from then on, it's like the final four for the, you know, the NCAA double NCAA basketball, you are head to head with competitor, you know, one goes against 64 and so on. You get bracketed down to the final eight. So I made it to the final eight. Um, but the top four, uh, the top three are the team and the fourth is an alternate. So I just, I made the top eight, but not the, not the final four, so to speak. So you're uh, fair to say, at least at that time, maybe still, but at least at that time, you're, you're one of the best archers in the world. Yeah, just, I was, I, I was three. used to, used to be. <laughs> <I'm washed> <laughs> <up now. laughs> That's something I, I think. I still hold my own shooting shooting in the leagues in the winter time here at home i can still hold my own but if i went anywhere somebody would beat me <laughs> I, I i bet you're still one of the the better shooters in most groups that you're in is that that's probably fair to say my kid my kid shoots now and he still thinks i'm cool so <laughs> hey that's hold on to that <laughs> that's not always yeah but i'll hang on to that as long if, as i can right if you're really if you're really lucky he'll never stop thinking that but i, I think at, at least there's a shot that he at some point won't won't see you as as cool as he does now. 
I see him challenging it every once in a while now, so we'll see. Did, did it cross your mind to try to make the 2008 team, or, or, or when you when that didn't work out, you moved on to other things? No, uh, when you live in that when you live in that world, I mean, I'm sure you probably see it with the jujitsu thing, you know. So you go to the you go to the dojo. What is it? They call it a dojo. Yeah, school and usually just school. School. So you yeah. you go there. And there's the people that are doing it like you do it, where you, you just see it as an additive thing to your life. Right. And yeah. then there's the people that are like the, the gym rats and they're just there all the time and they don't have anything else. They're not married. Yeah. They don't have kids. They're not, they're not doing anything else with their time. And that's, I didn't want to go down that road. And that's, yeah. you get into your twenties and you're going to do that. It's a, you're, you're choosing a different lifestyle. And I'm, that wasn't what I was looking for. It was something I was going to either do it while I was college age or I wasn't going to. So something I think about a lot is that there are people, you know, there are Michael Jordans and there are the people that are the, make the top three of the Olympic archery team. And there are people who are best in the world at chess and at playing the guitar and, and whatever. And uh, I think probably most of us, most of the time underestimate the lifestyle that it takes to be top 1% in the world at any skill. You, you really, you're giving up a lot of other things on purpose. And, and maybe that's exactly what you want to do and you're happy with it. It, it doesn't have to be bad, but you're choosing to yep. not, to not do almost everything else. Right. That's, right. that's the lifestyle. And it's, it's pretty insane. I, I actually just coincidentally this morning, I was listening to a podcast and they were discussing um, Kayla Harrison, who's a U.S. Olympic judo champion. And this exact thing, just the, just the type of dedication, the type of supreme devotion and 100% lifestyle that's just in her case centered around judo just eating right and training judo multiple times a day with the best people in the world and you're not doing any of the other things that you might do in life and then you win the gold medal which is the pinnacle of achievement for that and a lot of times people like that then deal with a little bit of depression put on, or, or put on 50 pounds and wonder what they're going to do with the rest of their life yeah or, or you, you you've done it now you've achieved this thing that your whole life was centered around and now what exactly that's yeah. I, and, and it doesn't have to be bad I, I don't know that it's bad but i think it is one of those things that, that you nailed it it's it's a it's a lifestyle that uh it, it is well it's your whole life that's all <laughs> to be to be that good it has to be your whole life and i've I guess I decided for myself or whatever that's worth it. I want to be okay at a lot of things. <laughs> I feel like that's a, yeah, well, I'm, hap I'm happier well, being well okay at a lot. Of, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel happier being okay at a lot of things and, and having a lot of different experiences. Uh, after that, you, you made that attempt, worked real hard and, and that didn't go. So you came back to Pennsylvania and, and uh, went back to work at the farm. Well, you went to work at the at the yeah. Navy place. Why? Well, I guess the is it was the deal then that the the farm business just couldn't support you as an employee. You needed I think, a. I think that year that year we we handled like uh, two hundred and eighty thousand. Or I've looked it up before. I think the first year I started helping with doing the books because I was working down there and helping with the books and stuff in the evening. Mm -hmm. Dave's dad got older. He was. I was really lucky that he was there to to teach teach me, and uh, but then also I. If you if you knew speed, he he was the guy that when you started the combine up, he he couldn't hear. He was deaf, but when you started the combine up, he'd somehow hear that, and you'd instantly see his golf cart, and he'd wonder where where you were taking his combine. So he was uh, he was he had some things that were always his, and I was very lucky that he uh, 
taught me the bookkeeping side of it and then also was able to take the reins and just turn them over. And there was at one point where yeah. I, I guess he just kind of did. He turned over the bookkeeping side of it. And I, I, yeah, I guess looking back on it, it's, it's surprising he turned it over with as much trust as he did. So do you find, yeah, so that's, I, you're in a situation now probably where you need to, or have had to turn some things over. Do you find it uh, easy to do? Yeah, I, I, I'm still, I still think I have micromanager tendencies. Uh, I, uh, you and I have talked about this before, about yeah. whether you wonder whether, whether anybody else is going to care about it as much as you do. But I guess through those discussions that I've had with people like you and the pod, I listen to a lot of podcasts and that's just kind of a thing of leadership. If you're going to grow a business and have anything that's successful that lives beyond you, you have to, you have to turn it over and, uh, I think, uh, you know, well, your, your first podcast, Bert, I mean, I, I, I know he's told stories like that before and, you know, his story about going out and riding on the train, mm. I, he's doing that because now he wants to get out of the office and go ride on the train. He's not doing it because he doesn't think the guy driving the train's doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There, yeah. there was a, there was a time in my life when I thought it would be impossible for me to let go of certain things just for, for exactly what you said. It wasn't that I didn't trust anybody else. It was just, I couldn't see, I couldn't see anybody caring about it as much as I did. And it had nothing to do with me not trusting them. It was just how, how is it possible that anybody could? And I think what I found out was uh, in some cases, the next person cares about it better more than I did. <laughs> yeah. Well, better at it and cares about it more in some ways than I did. And, and in, in other cases, maybe cares about it differently than I did, but it's just fine. I mean, there's nothing, I, I don't think anything has suffered for me giving it away. And in fact, quite a few things have gotten better. So it's just, it's kind of like having kids. Everybody tells you before you have children that your life is going to change a lot and you know it intellectually and then you have children and then you realize exactly what they meant. It's just a little bit, a little bit like that. It's hard to, it's hard to understand it until you've done it. No, I, I agree. But that's, that probably is still a weakness of mine for being honest. So, but that's, uh, I don't think I have a problem with that overall. I'm, my my crew, my my crew here, my teammates here will probably uh, listen to this and agree strongly. But I, that's where I'm at with it anyway. <laughs> and as of several years ago, uh, you're you're in the process of of becoming the owner of the business or one of the owners. Uh, how's that going? Um. So Dave, Dave, and I, I, I we got. I'm trying to think what year that was. It was a few years ago now. I just, we, I just kind of got to a situation where I've invested my whole life into this, and mm-hmm. Dave and I just had a conversation where I said, "Man, hey, I don't want to, I don't want to be your age, and drive by this place that I helped build and not have any way of continuing it on." You know, I, I don't. I, aside from my family, I couldn't imagine of anything else that I've put more time and energy in than than the business, and it means a lot to me more than more than dollars and cents. Just the this what it is so we had that conversation and i think he knows where my heart's at with that and uh he always said that his dad always said that it, when he got it it was a farm and he wants to see it stay a farm so dave's uh dave uh, didn't have kids that were could, uh, his one daughter moved back from new york city and now lives on the farm she's the fifth fifth generation there uh, but she's not involved in the day-to-day operations of the farm so i think it was just part of dave's legacy to can see it continue on. And I, I very much, I think he trusted in my heart. That's what I want to have happen. You know, if my kids aren't interested someday, 
that's one of the goals I've already thought through in my mind. I'd like to see somebody else keep it, keep it going. So. Has that process been? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, we don't, we haven't, there's not specific dollars. We've got, uh, you know, life insurance policies in place and stuff like that, that are buyouts, but, um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, the, it's a, it's more of a buy sell agreement that, you know, Dave's gonna, he's probably going to do like his dad and work until he physically can't anymore. Um, and, uh, and then at some point it'll just be a, the buy sell agreement comes into effect, but yeah, no, we, uh, he's, like a second father to me, you know, as far as that goes, it's not like, uh, not like a traditional buyout. If you, if, if you yeah. wanted to look at it that way, you yeah. know, your kids are pretty young, right? Yeah. My daughter's, uh, my daughter's 14 and, uh, my son's 12, Jack, and then Nolan's our youngest, uh, our youngest and wildest. Uh, you know, the first two went so easy. We're like, wait, I have a third child. And, and uh, yeah, he's, he's seven and he's, man, he keeps you on your toes. So That's yeah. way too, yep. way too early to know there if they're are. way too early to know if they're interested in the business or not, I guess. And yeah, they're getting, they're getting old enough. We had Claire down weighing, uh, she was weighing trucks in during wheat season and doing vomitoxin tests. So we're getting, trying to get them, start getting them working down there anyway. Most yeah, people, it's a long-term career goal, you got to have it in you. It's, it's something yeah. that's in your heart or it's not one of the two. So. Most uh, people I know that are in, in your situation or, or owning any kind of business, uh, it's, it seems to me anyway that most of them try to not even just not push their kids to be in the business, but sort of push them to do something else and then see if they come back or not. That's, is that what you're thinking? Or do, have you thought about that very much? Yeah, I, I well, I, I listened to when listening to Bert. Not to go, keep going back to Bert's excellent mm-hmm. podcast you guys did, but uh, you, know, you talked about moving the moving the grain from the sample buckets down there at the farm, and uh, yeah. I, I think about did I fail with that? Because I was always worried about having the kids around when they're younger with the trucks and the traffic and everything. You know, um, I uh, I could relate to his dad wanting to make sure he this is what he wanted to do. You know, I could see that you, you don't want to. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't think you'd want a kid to, to just see that as the, their only option. Uh, it's, it's a hard life. I mean, you know, it's, I, every, every, I think everything else is a hard life too. And I, I always <laughs> joke that we do what we do here so we don't have to go get real jobs, but I just look at every day as it's not, it's not always fun, but it's better than, to me, it's better than going and working a job in town. So but I can relate to what uh, Bert's sentiment there with his dad wanting to really make sure that was what his, what his future wanted to be. So. Switching gears here a little bit. Well, actually, I'm curious. <clears throat> you, you shoot archery. You grew up hunting and fishing. Is is hunting still a big piece of your life? Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's a it's the wrong sport for the for for the profession we picked. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, the ruts are like last week of October, first week of November around here, which is usually about the busiest time of the year that you can't get away. So, um, but yeah, no, we still we hunt. Dave and I both hunt. And, uh, I try to get away. I like, I like waterfowl hunting, try to get away and do that once or twice a year. So where does that happen for you? Out West trips. Uh, where do we go? Yeah. For waterfowl where you like to hunt. Uh, we, we, I've been doing a trip to Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. with our seed rep and, uh, that's been a great, a great trip. It's a nice place down there and they do the flooded timber kind of things. So it's, you get to watch the sunrise up through the flooded oak trees, which is pretty cool. So 
the whole experience. And then out west, I assume it's elk probably or my like favorite that. trips are out west, though. Yeah, we go to Colorado. Uh, not every year, but um, try to make it out there quite a bit. And it's yeah for for elk hunting and mule deer hunting in Colorado. It's just uh, majestic country out there. Yeah, that that makes. I don't hunt. I grew up in Ohio, or at least in my early life, grew up in Ohio, and everybody there hunted deer and still does. Uh, I think we moved away before I had the chance to get indoctrinated. So I don't hunt. I haven't, I don't, well, maybe other than a couple kind of pretend trips when I was a little kid, I've never have hunted. So I, I wonder a lot about the, what is it? When, when you go hunting for elk, mule deer in Colorado, is it the, is it the hunting itself? Is it the taking the animal? Is it more about being out in those mountains or prairies or wherever the hunt is happening? Is it the change of scenery? all the above like what's the what's the chief it's, uh, it's all it's the all hunt. the above I'm, i mean you, you want to try to get something that's yeah. everybody wants to try to get something but yeah. uh, i think for me the biggest thing is uh everybody has to have whatever their way of, of unplugging from the busyness of the day-to-day and then i guess recharging your batteries and for me that's getting out and and hunting and yeah the, the goal is to harvest an animal but uh it, yeah it's more just kind of getting away and the peacefulness of being out in the woods, you know, there's not a, you don't know that there's other people in the world except for an airplane that might fly over, you know? Yeah. I, I have coming from a place of complete ignorance or near complete ignorance about hunting. I wonder sometimes if you're way out in the middle of nowhere and you kill a big elk is the next first thought is I did what I came here for. This is perfect. Is the second thought Oh man, now I've got to get this giant animal <laughs> out of this wilderness and back to back to camp and then back to my house. Is that is that a thing that happens? I think I think about that. I think about oh man, what am I? How am I going to get this thing out of the woods? Uh, my friends, a guy I go hunting with, the one the one friend, he says, "You shoot it, and we'll worry about how to get it out of there." Which has resulted <laughs> in full day packouts. You know, start at dark in the morning and haul stuff out till dark at night and sleep the next day. So I, yeah, it. <laughs> But that, I think all of that's all part of the experience is, you know, yeah, it's, it's all part of it. I, 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 I only, only know about that from thinking it through it and for a little bit from fishing, because that, that's kind of where I landed was on fishing. I loved fish. I remember probably being 12 years old out with my dad and my uncle, and we just got into a hot spot and literally filled up the floor of the boat with fish because we, they were catching them so fast. We couldn't eat. We just got them off the hook and put it out again. And in the moment, it was just the most thrilling thing that I could imagine. And then it kind of died down and we probably have, I don't even know, I mean, 40 fish just flopping around the bottom of the boat, which is exactly what we went out there to do. And then you took a deep breath and said, oh man, we got to clean, we got to clean all these fish. <laughs> Almost. Almost, you kind of wish it was one of those days. It's just a gorgeous day on the water and nothing else happens. Almost, but I guess. Yep. But I guess if you didn't shoot the elk, if you didn't catch the fish, you wouldn't keep going back. Sometimes, I suppose. I, I don't go. Well, I usually don't shoot the myself. elk. I've, I've only no. I've been going out there. I only ever shot one. I shot okay. a deer all the times I've been out there. So I don't usually shoot the elk. So it's uh, yeah. Maybe that's why you go back. Experience. Yeah. That, that that one that one elk is is good enough for. 10 years maybe you keep keep going out there and enjoying the mountains and and remembering that one elk and then someday there'll be two maybe if you're lucky 
I took my I took my family out two two years ago, and uh, we we camped out with some friends and took a generator and just lived basically off the grid. And uh, it was uh, it yeah, my kids still talk about wanting to go back there. I mean, diesel fuel's been diesel fuel's a little higher than it was when we made that trip, but I, uh, I yeah, I think someday we'll go back. But it was uh, yeah, just beautiful country. Maybe it hasn't ever been there. You know, you got to put it on your put it on your bucket place of bucket list of places to see. Absolutely. So speaking of diesel fuel, uh, my impression at least is that you don't fly or you much prefer not to fly. Is that? I, yeah, I, I've had enough layovers and inconveniences with flying and I don't generally like sitting that close to people. I, I have a, if I can drive it, I'll, I'll always drive. I've driven to master management conferences. I've driven to you know, I'll drive, I'll drive anywhere pretty much. <laughs> yeah, what, what's the, what's the boundary of, I can't drive it. Is is it a continental United States or what's, is there some, if you have to go yeah, back to San Diego, is that a, you're going to fly there or how does that work? What was it? Was it San Antonio for the yeah. master management? Yeah. That was a little too far for me. <laughs> that gets, that's getting out there. I, yeah, I don't mind flying. I don't have a fear of flying. It's just, it just seems like it's more of a hassle than it used to be. And and I, I didn't, when I was younger and flying for archery and all that, I didn't, I, I, I don't remember how many times I took the free ticket because my, they overbooked the flight when I was trying to fly back and forth. To ah, San Diego. Yeah. I just do that all the time. I didn't care. I got a free meal and a free ticket out of it. Like, but I, uh, now it's just more of an inconvenience and you want to get home and see your wife and kids. And I just, yeah. I, I don't know. No, the, the free like ticket is the, situation. the yeah, the free ticket is the single person's game, for sure. Yep. Yeah, you and I talk about books a lot, and not just you and I, you and Roger, and you and a bunch of other people. It, it seems to me you read a lot. I'm curious, did, what uh, if you had to pick, or maybe you do, do you read all kinds of books, or do you read one genre in specific? And if so, what is what is it? I read all kinds of books. I like... Uh... I like history. Roger recommended one recently. It's called Oceans of Grain. Yep. And it's interesting. It's it's all about the history of the grain trade and the, they call it the black paths, you know, around the world and just how just the history of how we always think that, you know, in our market changes or something, that that's kind of a new thing. Well, they've been this has been for the existence of humanity a, a thing. And uh, I I don't know. There's books like that. You sometimes you read and they just open your eyes to how big how big the world is and Yes, you know, seems like we're living in crazy times right now. Until you, you pick up a history book or listen to a podcast where they're talking about the Civil War in Gettysburg and fifty thousand people died in three days, you know. And I, I don't know. I think I think sometimes reading and it helps you keep your mind in perspective. And uh, I don't know, not overreact, not underreact, you know. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. There's if you don't have some historical perspective, then anything that's happening seems like the biggest thing that's ever happened. Or the most extreme thing, or the the most uh, politically wild thing, or what, whatever it is. But you could find out. Even in this country, our our politicians used to shoot each other. And if you go back in yeah, world right. history, I mean, there, you know, the the uh, ancient governments outdid us in almost every kind of craziness you can imagine. Yeah. So yeah. most mostly nonfiction history type of thing. Is that where you? Yeah, land I, I like a lot of a lot of nonfiction. I uh, every once in a while somebody will recommend one. I I, uh, I think it was the terminal list was the last one. I think it was a, it was a thing they did on uh, one of the streaming services. they made like a, a series out of it, but 
I read that book. It was recommended to me. It was really good. Um, yeah, mainly non, I tend to the nonfiction. Do you uh, reread books or do you just get on to the next book? Every once in a while. Uh, yeah, every once in a while. I, there's times that I'll, I'll go back and look at something again or I, I don't know. Usually when I'm arguing with somebody, I want to prove a point. I'll go back and reread something like, no, you're wrong. This is, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I am a debate. I'm a debater. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, in recent years, I think I, I've really started to enjoy debate. And by that, I mean, people who are friends and disagree on something and talk about it and defend their positions strongly and are still friends when it's over. I've lost almost all my interest in argument, but I, I really started to love uh, a reasoned debate among friends. I think that would be the perfect solution to the world's problems right now is every night we should pick an issue and just take over the airwaves and take all the stupid stuff off of TV and just have a debate where we work through both sides of an argument. And people would see a lot of times like, you know what, that thing that is presented as black and white on my preferred news channel is probably more nuanced when you hear all the arguments between them, you know, and there's a lot of big things that our country needs to figure out. And I, I agree with you. The only way we're going to, we have to be able to talk about them, but it has to be, we have to be able to debate them, not, not argue and hate each other at the, at the end of it. This is, uh, this idea has really increased my appreciation of academia. I, I grew up in a personal and then business culture environment that kind of pokes fun at academia because, you know, a bunch of people sit around talking about stuff, but don't know how the world really works and day-to-day -day practical things. And there's definitely some truth to that. But when you find two people that come from high academic background and they get into a, a debate like you're talking about, and they're truly just debating on the merits of their position they're not yelling at each other they're not straw manning each other they're not making trying to make the other person represent the extreme pole of their end of the argument they're just almost for fun exchanging ideas and thinking them through clearly they're not fighting they're just saying here's what i think here's what i think and then responding to each other there's a, a tremendous amount of value i think in that and those people know how to do it. You know, maybe the rest of us don't yep. really know. The rest of us want to turn it into a fight, kind of. But the academics, at least the a, a certain brand of academics, let's say, that's their whole life is thinking through things and arguing with the goal of understanding things better, not the goal of winning the conversation. So that's my that's my yep. plug in favor of academia for whoever cares. William William F. Buckley. They, that was the the old black and white ones that you see them on YouTube every once in a while where they're debating a topic. That kind of a format, I think, is uh, would be very powerful. I I haven't watched a political debate in years because it's never a debate. But I, it would be cool if it was. Yep. <laughs> we we yep. can dream. If you uh, if if I asked you to tell me a book or books that have had the biggest impact on you personally, would, do you have a, a name easily to mind, or does it not work like that for you? I don't know that it works that way for me. Uh, I mean, from a political, from a political standpoint, and I guess my uh, my for what's forming my opinion of what's broken in the country, the five thousand year leap is a good one. Um, I I keep that's one I do go back to because there's a lot of 
um, just sound history in there where they've gone back through and looked at why things are, how things have evolved the way they they have. And, you know, why is this country, why does this country seem to have made such great strides that for prior millennia, you know, human, the human race wasn't able to do. So what, uh, you know, I, I, I like that one, the 5,000 year leap. And from that, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a church going, I'm a church going Christian. I, I, uh, I think that there's a lot of times you, there, you know, the whole saying, there's nothing new under the sun. If you go back to, if I go back to my, my, uh, my Christian faith, you can, there's a lot of things you can work out in this world with that, with that basis in mind, you know, whether it be biblical or some, some found knowledge that someone looking at, uh, you know, through a study or something that somebody has looked at problems in the past. There's a lot of problems that we, we think that all, all of our things are new and with it, it, nobody's ever went through this before. And it, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of just truth out there that we just need to discern it. Well, almost nothing is new, and almost everybody in the past has been through something similar. Maybe the face of it's different. You know, the people that were alive three thousand years ago didn't have to worry about YouTube and and uh, digital piracy and, and hacks yeah. and things. But but the the people behind it, the human motivations behind it, haven't changed. I think that's fair to say. I'm going to right. throw some some uh, rapid fire questions at you, and and if if you have if you don't have to answer is what I'm trying to say. If, if these are questions I thought would be interesting, if they uh, if none of them applies to you directly, that's okay. We can move on. What was a big change in your business that you were afraid of, but it turned out to be okay? I guess probably every every time we've built something, it's been nerve wracking, and you lose sleep at night and worry about is the business going to show up is this was that last big year where we were clear full was that going to be the last big crop we're going to handle and i don't know it's always seemed to turn out okay um we've held off on some stuff lately with material prices being up and all that and yeah you, you still uh want to keep growing and it's that's probably been the hardest thing is just penciling out those paybacks and what's the right time to expand and not you know but yeah all of our things we've done to grow the business they've always seemed like they've worked out the other, the other one that you could say that's probably pretty yeah. close, yep. it's just it's hiring people. You know, you you never you always worry about taking on one more mouth to feed, and you know you feel like you get this responsibility of taking care of that family, and and w those have all worked out too. I mean, everybody we've ever hired, we've had one guy retire now, but everybody we've ever hired still works here. So wow, um, that's something I think we can put a feather in our cap for. We got a pretty good pretty good team team of people that way. So that's something that, you know, every single time you bring somebody on, you worry about it, but it's, it's worked out. That probably deserves a podcast of its own someday. Everybody we've ever hired still works here. That's now it's not a huge team that you're dealing with, but still that's an amazing, there are very few people who can say it's always worked out for us with employees. That that's really something. There's some yep. secret sauce there. We need to dig into sometime. Uh, what was your worst day in the grain business? Well, we've had some grain dryer fires and things like that, but nothing ever major. Um, I uh, I don't know. Probably some of the most stressful days were the the years with the with margin calls and you know the fear of running out of money and and it, you know I think it was was it oh eight that it was the kind of first yeah. time everybody else had gone through it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so that those times there were, were probably not fun. Um, they were they weren't they weren't good times, but I. 
look in hindsight they've, they've they've made us all stronger as far as uh it doesn't keep me awake at night like it used to you know isn't, isn't it amazing that when those things are happening they feel eternal i mean it's you just wake up every day and it happens again and it, it's incredibly stressful and then in hindsight it turns out to be a relatively small no less stressful, but relatively small segment of your life. And you survived it. And, and the, the risk-taking measures you're taking at the time, like widening your basis and all things, were all the things that fueled your growth. You know, at the end of the day, you could probably couldn't have grown your business without those times happening. Wow. Yeah. Well said. This one doesn't have to be grain business specific, but it can. What are you most proud of? I, I, I'll, I can kind of have two. I, I'm I'm yeah, proud of my kids, of course. kids, and and uh, my wife has a successful career as a physician assistant, and my kids are all doing fantastic in school. So, I mean, if we can keep those keep those kids on on the, on the rails and not going off the rails, I mean, it's a tougher. It seems like it's a tougher world to do that in than the one I grew up in. Um, I, I'll continue to be proud about that. Um, I'm, I'm going to recommend some books for you, probably, so you so you know that uh, raising children has always been difficult. <laughs> yeah i know i know um and then i guess from the grain business side of it i i i uh i felt a little bit off put whenever you, not off put but that's the wrong word um i didn't think that i had anything to offer whenever you asked me to do your podcast but you know i talked to dave about it and i guess i guess we we our team here we can be proud of the fact the business growing the business and we've grown something that's profitable and supports a number of families. And um, so I am, I guess I am proud of that. Um, that's been something that's been good in our lives and provided me the opportunity to do things that I probably wouldn't have ever done if I'd have stayed working that job in Pittsburgh. So. Good stuff. What uh, you and I, I think share an appreciation of podcasts as a way to fill in time where you maybe you just be driving otherwise or doing something else what any podcast in particular either whole podcast or episodes of podcasts that you recommend probably something i spend too much time on in my life but uh so i don't know you, you ever heard of dave ramsey so that was yep. probably got my life financially my personal financial life the most on track i don't listen to it as much anymore but uh anybody listening to this podcast it's got a kid that's gone off the rails with money or yourself or whatever that guy will talk you out of buying a new car almost every time. Um, <laughs> so that was a, that was a, a good one for me. Um, I like uh, I like the from a leadership message standpoint. I like um, Jocko. I mean, that's kind of my go-to for uh, for the leadership stuff. I mean, he's he's got some really good stuff where he's gone through and interviewed battlefield leaders and business leaders and and uh, there's some pretty good nuggets that come out of that one. Every once in a while, they're pretty long. He can get into a three, four hour rant, but yeah, um, they're, they're solid overall. I mean, he does a good job with that topic. And I guess on the political side of things, I like, uh, I like Dennis Prager stuff. I, I don't know. I'm drawn to Dennis Prager stuff. He's pretty good. And, uh, I'm a Mark Levin, I'm a Mark Levin listener. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the short list of, a. <laughs> small subset of a long list of podcasts hey speaking of dave ramsey i I should thank you here because i think i don't even know it had to have been 14 years ago now or maybe longer uh you sent me leftover um 
with some some CDs or DVDs and a, a folder and some envelopes and like a whole leftover set of things from a I think of a class maybe that you were taking or for the Financial in. Peace University. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we we never went to one of those um, in person, but my wife and I worked through that book and and uh, changed up a lot of things that that have been very helpful to us in our lives. And it's kind of like you, I, I don't think we are directly involved with his material anymore, but it, it hit us at the right time and, and made us right. rethink a lot of things and change up a lot of things and just pay attention to where we were spending money and that awareness and uh, desire, well, discipline rather than desire to save money and stay out of debt as was transformative for us. So thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. If, uh, if you were talking to 20 year old John Burkett right now, instead of talking to me, what advice would you give him? Probably give him, give him the same advice that I probably need to hear today. And that's to probably seek to understand the problem. I'm like, I'm kind of every once in a while I can be that if, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing. And it, it, there's a lot of times where you could not cause problems just by stopping and understanding the problem. I, I, uh, I'm a politician too. I, I'm a local, I'm our local township supervisor. Okay. And I think that's helping me with that because I, I, uh, you know, being in business and being a politician, you need the people that are either bringing you product or, or your residents, you need them to like you at the end of the day. So I've tried to do, I'm trying to be better at just listening and hearing the problems and, and working to a solution that's not controversial in any way. <laughs> That's probably the, you know, just listen first. Good advice. Do you think 20 year old John would have listened to that? I don't think I'm, I'm worried about 40 year old John really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I think I've always known that that's the right thing. It's just, you know, you, you, sometimes your personality style needs to be put in check. So that's, uh, that's probably, this is continual. I think we've all got our own version of that and it's just a continual thing you're always working on. Absolutely. John, I can't thank you enough. I think uh, despite your misgivings, I, I think this is going to be, I already know this is a great one. And I learned a lot. I, appreciate it, Phil. I, feel, I think every time I talk to you, I learn a lot about a lot of things and this is no exception. So appreciate your time. Well, appreciate, to, appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Take care. Thanks. So. Yep.